Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 is where we are this morning. Good morning again and welcome. So here's our run-in to this morning's message. We are studying the gospel of Matthew verse by verse. I'm calling this whole time that we're in this gospel Matthew the Evangelist because Matthew is a proclaimer of Jesus. He is a proclaimer of who he is and Jesus' work then and in our lives today and his work for all of eternity. As Matthew begins this biography about Jesus' life, the first couple chapters, he's really pressing into the identity of who Jesus is. Major definition and that is that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. And that second major definition is his name and what his name means. Jesus means he shall save his people from their sins. So when we press into that relationship with him, who he is, what he did, who he is for us today, what he's doing in his return and for all eternity, we're looking to him as our savior. He's the one that has delivered us from darkness, from sin, from death, and has given us his incredible light. In chapter three, you have his baptism Another major definition and preparation for his life where the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and anoints him for his public ministry. And then in chapter 3, we have that proclamation of the Father's voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. As you shift into Matthew chapter 4, we have his temptation where the devil is pretty much asking the question, what kind of son are you? What kind of of son of God are you? And we watch him in his humanity perfectly resist temptation in his relationship with the Father, responding with the Word. And then as he goes out from there, this is the foundation of his public ministry as Jesus is going out. He's doing a few things. One, he is preaching. The message that he is preaching is that message of repentance. Repentance simply means change your mind, change the way that you think. Yes, you used to think this way. The course of your life was that way. There's this call to repent and for a change in all of our lives as we press into this message. And the reason is, Jesus says, it's for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the king and he is coming in the future. He is coming with his kingdom, his laws, his righteousness, his light, his glory. So because his kingdom is near, the son has been sent to deliver humanity out of kingdoms of darkness and all of those variety into his marvelous kingdom of light. We're going to press into this imagery of light again today. But as he is sent there and released by the Father into that public ministry, as he's going into Galilee, there's this prophecy and this proclamation, Behold, you who used to be dwelling in darkness, light has dawned in your presence and all of this imagery of Jesus. And now in, in chapter 4, we're watching as Jesus is going about and teaching, people are responding to that light. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. But in those, in those public conversations, that's one thing. But he's also having private conversations where he's calling individuals, individuals, not groups, individually, looking somebody eye to eye and say, you, follow me. And I'm going to make you to be fishers of men. And this is really where we're going to press into this whole idea of evangelism. Matthew being an evangelist, proclaiming the gospel. 
And as we sat last week in the Beatitudes, we're watching Jesus define what the character of a follower, the character of a disciple, of a believer, of a Christian is what we would say today. Jesus has given us those foundational definitions of what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn and to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. And then the last one that he focused in on was the idea of persecution. There is, a, there is an aspect of our life as we choose to press in and follow him that there's going, to become, there's going to come resistance in our life from a variety of different sources as we follow Jesus. And that resistance causes us to respond in all kinds of ways, Right? But Jesus immediately, as he's talking about this persecution, now he presses into not necessarily character attributes that he is forming in us. He is defining who we are in him as his followers. And not just who we are in him, but who we're to be to those on the outside. So the verses that we're going to press in today to those, these definitions that you are the salt of the earth and that you are the light of this world. This is not a maybe I am, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm partially kind of conversation that Jesus is presenting to his followers and to his listeners. These are definitions of identity of who we are in him. You're not partially salt. You're not partially light. Yes, we can press into those teachings and those ideas about growing and maturing in him. But what we're going to sit in as a focus is what he is declaring to his followers in regards to being salt and light. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we're just going to cover these four verses here. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's it. That's all we're covering. So is major themes as we are looking at this. Singular, first one is, again, Jesus is giving for you, and he is giving for me, and he is giving to every individual believer. This is who you are, and he is the one who is defining you. You are the salt of this earth. You are the light of this world. And this is not in independence from him. This is what he has given each one of us to be in him as his followers. So major focus is he is identifying us. The second major thing that what he is really focusing on here is this is your influence to the people that are in this room. This is your influence in your home, in your workplace, 
And wherever you are out in this world, you are to be salt in this world and you are to be light in this world as he identifies you and the influence that he gives you, whether that influence is very narrow and small or it's on a very grand scale. Two other major ideas playing out of this when he is defining you are the salt of the earth that idea, its major focus is on your words. So in the Beatitudes, he is listing out these characteristics that he is developing in us. He is changing us. He is transforming us over time. And now as we have that character that's being formed in him as we follow him, now he's talking about here are the words of influence that you have in whatever sphere that you abide in in life. And then when he presses into the idea of that you are the light of the world, huge biblical concept from beginning to end. But the focus that it seems that he's bringing out here is that he's focusing on our deeds and our actions. So major outline, if you have those four points and you just press into meditation and your relationship with Jesus, you don't have to listen to anything else this morning. Got it? But I have a lot more to say, as always. So here's salt. Salt's fascinating. Both salt and light are required for life. If you do not have salt, you will die. I didn't, I didn't look this up, but I'm like 99.9% .9 sure that if you drink too much water, do you know that you can kill yourself by drinking too much water? But that idea is because it lowers that sodium, that salt level in your body, and you'll die. So we have excess sodium in our culture. We're not going to press into diet or anything like that. We're going to press into Jesus's context and his culture. So salt is a very important commodity of life. We get our word salary from the Latin word for salt. And that comes from the Roman soldiers were given an allowance. They were given a salary. They were getting, given a stipend to purchase salt. It was a necessary thing that they needed. And there was a very specific stipend salary in their payment for them to purchase salt. It's also where we get the English word salad from. And I find this fascinating. Yeah, that's what I said, John. Huh, what? Who likes to eat vegetables plain and raw? You liars. <laughs> I, this, is, this is the one that comes to mind. Who, li who, likes, who likes raw Brussels sprouts? Yeah, again. Who likes just boiled, you know, steamed Brussels sprouts? Anybody just eat those things raw? Raw, yeah, exactly, raw. Yeah. Everybody hates their vegetables. What do we have to do to our vegetables so that we'll eat them? We got to season them. We got to spice them up. But literally, the word, word salad comes from salted vegetables. Shaking salt on your vegetables, adding flavor, adding seasoning to something that's really not that palatable. You might choke down because you know that it's healthy for you, but you sprinkle some salt on your salad, oil and vinegar, those other primary ingredients for the dressings that we throw into a salad, but it makes it palatable. palatable. I had Brussels sprouts yesterday. I love them. Growing up, my parents would cook them. I'd want to vomit in my mouth. But if they are prepared the right way, oh, yeah. That balsamic vinaigrette and baked and they're a little charred and, you know, there's all the way to dress them up and fancy. I love Brussels sprouts if they're prepared the right way. 
That's the idea that Jesus is bringing out with this word, for you are the salt of this earth. You are a seasoning. You are a flavor. How much uh, is too much salt a bad thing? Yeah, it's gross in, in our mouth. What's cool in this too is Jesus is using very, uh, very simple ideas that anybody in humanity can understand because we all have taste. Saltiness, bitterness, sweetness, sourness, and savoriness are the five things that our, te- that our tongues sense as we eat food. So saltiness is a very primary thing as we season the food that we eat. So when Jesus is commanding us to be not commanding us, he is identifying us as the salt of this earth. He is telling us that we are to be seasoning in the life of the people around us. We are, we are already saved in him. We've responded to him. We're following him. He's making us to be fishers of men. He's making us to be evangelists. And he's telling us that you are this seasoning in the life of other people in the right doses. He's not telling you to come and open up the whole bag of salt and just dump it into somebody's life. But he's telling you to come in and sprinkle that gospel and sprinkle that seasoning with your words as you interact with others. I have uh, these passages are going to be on the wall so you don't have to turn into your, in your Bibles, but you can if you want. This is Luke chapter 14. And this gives a lot deeper weight to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew, but it's going to give us weight to this idea of discipleship and what it means to be a follower, because this idea of being salt, Jesus brings up at the end of what's being communicated in Luke 14. He says, now great multitudes went with him, went with Jesus, and he turned and he's saying to the multitudes, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What do you think of those words? This is not hatred as, you know, you get to dishonor your parents and your family and you just cast every other relationship aside. What he's, what he's putting, this is hyperbole. This is an extreme to kind of stop you in your tracks and force you to think. So Jesus has all of these multitudes that are following him. And there's this day when he turns around, and he casts his voice to the multitudes. Whoever wants to follow after me, unless you hate your mother and your father, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He gives a couple of examples to define this. He says, which of you, well, sorry, verse 27, don't want to skip that. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And yeah, this is, this is something that we can only imagine. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, that gives you a basic visual understanding of carrying a cross and what that execution looked like. 
We don't have this kind of visual example for us, but this is a very real example in the culture that Jesus is preaching to, that he's talking to the multitudes, unless you bear your own cross, knowing that you are on a death march, that you are marching to your death, you cannot be my disciple. Why does he say these things? For which of you intending to be a builder, which intending to build a tower, does not sit down and first count the cost? whether he has enough to finish it. Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, so he gives these examples of here's very real world circumstances of what it means to be prudent in counting out the cost of the actions that you are going to undertake. If you want to go out and build a tower, you got to make sure that you can get from the beginning of this all the way to the end of it financially. If you are going to go out to war, you need to make sure that before you pick a fight with somebody that you are able to have victory in that fight. Otherwise, you're going to come crawling on your belly, begging for peace because you didn't know what you got yourself into. That's the idea that he's conveying in regards to all of these multitudes that are responding to him for the miracles, for maybe the food, for their ideas of what it means for him to be king and what it means for him to be Messiah. So he's breaking the culture of all of their ideas of who they expect him to be in their life, in their time. And Jesus does the exact same thing with us. He breaks us of all of our definitions and we have to press into who he defines himself as. So, Before you make that decision to follow Jesus, Jesus is telling us, count the cost because it will cost you everything. You can't hold back. You can't turn. Once you are on this path, you are his. He is going to keep you. He is going to lead you. It is wonderful. There are times in life where you feel like you're kicking and screaming, stop it. Find, find that position of mourning, but find that position of rejoicing in him in those things because he will lead you faithfully. Verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all, turn your back on all, cannot be my disciple. This is his definition and his requirement. And then verse 34, he, he gives this idea of salt. Salt is good. But if the salt lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this whole idea of salt losing its flavor, it's an impossibility. He has defined you as salt. You cannot lose that definition in him. The cultural idea that he's bringing out is the salt of the day is going to have other minerals mixed in with it. And those mineral ore through somebody saying that they're selling you salt and in it's mixed a different material that you're only getting half salt in it. 
salt as you store it, the actual salt itself can, you know, it evaporates and it can melt away, and you can be left with the material that's not salt, and it doesn't have any flavor anymore. So there's two different ideas that Jesus is pressing into in this, into this question. Because he's asking this question, if salt loses its flavor, how can it be salted again? And the, the definition is, it's impossible. It's only good to be cast out. And one of the ideas with salt is it was used as a fertilizer in limited quantity. But if you wanted to destroy a field and prevent crops from, um, from growing, you could salt the land. And enemies would do this uh, in the land where they would throw salt into the fields and that would prevent crops from growing. So in answering this, uh, this question that Jesus is bringing out, we all ought to know that it is absolutely, you can't make salt salty again without adding salt to the salt. Does that make sense? So he's saying if you are not, if you are not um, in, in the discipleship definition, he is giving the definition of what it means to be his follower. He's given that identity and definition that you are salt. But if you're not salt, there's no way for you to become salt by adding anything to your life other than Jesus Christ and Jesus defining you as that salt is the idea. When it comes to the words, this is, comes out of Colossians chapter 4. Paul encouraging the church there. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Again, your words to God. Be vigilant in your words to God with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. So in your words to God, would you pray for us that God would give us a door for his words to other people? to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make manifest that which is hidden, that I may make it appear and known as I ought to speak, is what Paul says. Verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. So not just in our relationship with those within the church, but in your relationship and in your interactions with people who are outside of the body of Christ, who we want in the body of Christ, because therein is their life and their light and their salt and their salvation. Walk in wisdom to those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Verse 6 says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Again, so as you sit in this definition of Jesus calling us the salt of this earth, he is talking about the words that you speak. These are words that we speak to him. These are words that we speak to one another in, in the body of Christ. These are words that we speak to each other as husbands and wives. These are words that we speak as parents and children. These are words that we speak as brothers and sisters. These are words that we speak to our employers and our employees and our coworkers. These are the words that we speak to the strangers. These are the words that you type in Facebook. These are the words that you proclaim when you think that it's anonymous. 
These are the words that are not to be identified and pressed into our minds and our hearts and our ears and our souls from any other source other than Jesus. His words are to be our words. His words towards us, they are words of grace. When you sit in his words, are they not something that is palatable to you? There's something satiating about it. There's, some, there's a flavor. There's a spice. There's a satisfaction there of when you sit in the word of God and you get your fill in that moment. And then there's this constant craving for the next meal because I need to eat again and I need to eat again and I need to eat again. And we ought to have that same effect that he's had in our soul We are told that we ought to have his words and we need to pray for those words and make sure that those words that we're communicating to others, especially in the name of Jesus, that they are seasoned with the gospel of grace, that they are seasoned with this salt, with this flavor, what salt is intended to be and do in its physical imagery in our life and food and what it means in his definition of us and how we walk this out in life. I'm going to springboard on this whole idea of Paul saying that I may, that I may make it manifest, that I may make it visible, that I may make it seen, the words that I will speak them as I ought. Now we're going to turn to this definition of being defined as the light of the world. You sit all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're told that the earth is covered with water, but it's covered in darkness. And then we have God speak these words, let there be light. This light that God creates, whatever this electromagnetic spectrum is, we can see in this very narrow portion of visual light to experience and interact with his creation. But that spectrum includes light that we can't see with our eyes. That's the light that God created in that moment. In that creation, we're told that he created the sun and the moon and the stars also. The sun being this gigantic ball of fire that provides us light. In Jesus's context, is he speaking to the people? Their only sources of light are that great big ball of fire in the sky that rules over the day. We have this little ball of light that, that waxes and wanes, the moon, and all it does is reflect the light of the sun to us, right? And that's part of it. That's a great analogy for us to be the light of the world. If Jesus is this source of light, the sun, we would be like the moon. All we are doing is reflecting his light to this world, to this earth. Does that make sense? That's a great idea, but I don't think that that is the definition that Jesus is giving for us. Because the other source of light that humanity has before modern electricity and invention is what? It's a fire. He's that great big ball of fire in the sky in analogy and in picture. He is the light of lights. He is the source of all light. But us, he's called us and defined us as light also. And we're a bunch of little flames. Some of us are a candle. You know, you're still shining light. Some of us are a gigantic bonfire. May we all be such in this culture. I wrote down this quote is up on the wall. I thought that this was fabulous definition of light. The absence of light does not exist when there is presence of light. 
sit in that. The absence of light, darkness, doesn't exist in the presence of light. How many know and understand that we live in a very dark world morally, socially, emotionally, right? There's all these different imageries in regards to the contrast between darkness and light. Jesus is defining us. He has caused us and declared us to be light in this world. And wherever you go, disciple, follower, Christian, wherever you go, you are going defined as light. And wherever there is darkness in this world, that darkness is going to fade in comparison to the light that you are reflecting and projecting and causing to come into other people's souls. And it's the same thing. Fire can be an awesome thing. Light can be an awesome thing. We cannot exist without light. Light is necessary for the production of food and the energy that plants receive. Light can also be very destructive. If you have too much light, if you have too much heat, that heat can kill and dry out. So there is a proper balance in that light. But here, Jesus, again, defining us as light, pressing into this imagery of a city on a hill. Everybody knows, if, you, if you've ever seen an elevated city, it's impossible for that light to be hidden because that light always pierces the darkness. And you can see it as far as the horizon, you can see the light. And even beyond the horizon, if it's a powerful light, because it's still illuminating the clouds, because that light will go up into the sky. And for this culture, he's talking about a lamp in the household. They don't have light switches back then to go flip on lights in their homes. They have these little, these little jars that have oil and a little wick coming out of it. The light is very dim. It's not bright. So therefore, you don't set it on, you know, some place where it's hidden in a corner. Everybody's going to place their light on a sconce on the wall or on a lampstand so that light that's there and that's present can illuminate the whole house. You don't put it under a basket. You don't hide it. You don't shelter it. You let it shine because that's the purpose of light. So again, is Jesus identifying us? You are the light of this world. As his follower, in that definition and in that declaration, your life is to bring light into the darkness that you see. If you have a problem with the darkness of your own soul, you turn into Jesus and you approach the one who dwells in this unapproachable light, we're told, and you find that cleansing and you find that removal of darkness and that restoration of your own soul. As you get up out of that position and you see darkness in the life of somebody in your own household, how do you shine that light? How do you bring that seasoning and that flavor in his word? You're living it, yes, through your actions, Right? The salt is through your words, and this light is through your deeds. So that those people, even in your own home, as they witness you live, as they witness you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, as they watch you study the word, as they watch you quote the word, as they watch your life changed and transformed, as they look, you, look at you go through hell on this earth in a circumstance and still have this position of peace and joy as you're following him, that is shining light into the, dark, into the darkness of other people's souls. The life experiences that he takes you through and has taken you through, 
He enables you to shine light into that dark circumstance in somebody else's life. For brothers and sisters, we get to reflect Jesus back and forth to each other. This is that idea of iron sharpening iron, the sweet fellowship that we have in him. But for those who are on the outside, those who aren't believers yet, we're told that we are to bring light into their life, not to go in and curse their darkness, because they're already condemned. They're already abiding in darkness. So as we sit in a couple of verses in regards to light, one, the Gospel of John, John himself, whether it's Gospel of John, his three letters, Revelation, use the imagery of light all over the place. Jesus defines in John 8 that he's the light of the world and that he who follows him shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life, praise God. And John 3, famous verse, John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Light has come into the world. He is the light by definition. He is called uh, the life. We are told that our light is in him. Our life is in him. Light has come into the world. And he says, and men loved darkness rather than the light. And again, this is talking about sin and its corruption, all those different desires of the flesh in this world. Loving darkness rather than the light because their deeds, their actions were evil. For everyone practicing evil, this is, uh, again, the, the dominant theme of life in practice, maturing in it, growing in it. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. This idea gets back into that being persecuted for being a follower of Jesus. There are some, there are many who love darkness, who love what they're getting in this world, getting what they want, what they see, what they like. And when you communicate the salts and the lights that is contrary to their desire, they don't like that light. They want to hide from that light. They want to curse that light. They want to persecute that light because that light is revealing where they're off. And that can be extremely uncomfortable outside of Christ. It's even uncomfortable being a believer in Christ when he comes in and knocks on our hearts. So they hate the light and they don't come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. But, and here's the contrast, he who does the truth Again, these are our deeds, these are our actions, comes to the light that your deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And this is this idea of uh, the actions, the, the things that you choose to do in life, 
motivated through your relationship with him, motivated in your goal is him. This is what you're aiming at. These things that you're choosing to do in your behavior, that you're drawing near to his marvelous light. And that's your candle flame is growing into the campfire that grows into that bonfire in him as he continues to illuminate your soul and transform you. John, or not John, this is Paul in Romans chapter 13 as he's encouraging the Roman church. Not only is light an exposing thing, light is a protecting thing. Paul says, do this. This is Romans 13, 11. Do this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. What do we do? What's, what's, uh, it's dark when we sleep, right? So now it's time to be awake. Don't be in darkness anymore. It's daytime. Wake up in your relationship with Jesus. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works, the deeds of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Love that definition. Let us put on the armor of light. Armor, there's a protective nature and description and uh, imagery in regards to armor. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, right? These things that occur in the dark hours of the night, let us walk properly as in the day. Not in strife, not in envy, He told us to put on the armor of light. And in verse 14, he tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our light, he is our armor. Make no provisions for your flesh to fulfill its lust. In Ephesians chapter five, this is the last one. Ephesians 5, 8, Paul encouraging the Ephesians. For you were once darkness. So you used to be defined as, condemned as, but no longer in your relationship with Christ. You are now defined as light. But now you are light in the Lord, not apart from him, but in him. Walk as children of light. Again, this is your action, the course of your life, the things that you do. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship. This, is, um, this doesn't mean that we just turn our backs on people who are abiding in darkness. But fellowship is participation in, association with, taking on that life. So have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Have a conversation about it with salt. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For, who, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. As a disciple... As a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you are not becoming, but you are defined already as you are 
the salt, the seasoning and the flavor of this earth. And he has scattered us throughout the nations of this world to bring that salt and to bring his light into all of this world. Amen? Worship team, come on up. But the end of this, Jesus focuses on that when people, when people listen to you, when they hear your words, and when they see your deeds, what are they supposed to do? What do you want them to do? Give you the attaboy? Give you the girl. Look how big your flame is. Is that what we're to be aimed at? There's certain, we're going to get into later on in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us to do our deeds, to do our charitable deeds in secret. Don't do it for the public display. Don't do it for your own affirmation and your own exaltation in the culture. So we have that warning. But again, first he sits with, as him identifying us and then telling us what our influence is to be in this world as he is sending us out into to this world, as other, humans being, as other human beings respond to your light and to your salt, that they would turn and that they would offer praise and glory to your Father in heaven. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I want you to sit with this. How many people has God sent into your life to sprinkle some flavor of his words, to encourage you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to, to help realign you and send you on that path, to send you to Jesus in the first place? Many, I've had many come and be salt to me. I've had many believers come and be light to me. And that has caused my life to turn and to praise God. I was literally in the back of the room this morning at the end of worship. I was shocked that worship was over. I felt like it was the first song. It only felt like a moment to me. I wanted more. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to take this salt and this light as we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're going to take it back and we're going to offer praises to God through communion, through your vocal worship, through your prayer, through your words to him, through your words to each other as we fellowship after church, after this service. But I thought what was really cool, I was putting all these verses in Proclaim this morning, and then I saw what the next song is. And this is just cool because this is from the Holy Spirit. It's telling us to run to our Father. When people see your good works, may they turn around and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the Almighty God is identified as your Father. And Jesus is going to press into this imagery deeply as we follow him in the pages of the gospel. Here's the song that we're going to sing. I've carried a burden for far too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. I see it now. I'm laying it down, and I know that I need you. I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding. No reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again. My heart has been in your sight long before my first breath. Running into your arms is running into life from death. I feel this rush deep in my chest. Your mercy is calling out. Just as I am, you pull me in. And I know I need you now. You saw my condition, had a plan from the start. 
your son for redemption, the price for my heart. I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. I can't comprehend. All I know is I need you. Amen.